This morning we arrive at the final chapter of our study of 1 John, and you're going to pick up on the same themes that we have been reviewing week after week after week. In the text today, John says, believing in Jesus, believing in God, and loving other Christians is what makes one a Christian. But we know that it's not just mentally agreeing with that that actually makes one a Christian. If you go back to the time of the Reformation, one of the key arguments that the Protestant reformers were pushing back on against the Catholic Church at the time was simply a knowledge of what it meant to be saved without having heart change. So what the reformers did is they began to define what saving faith was and what it is. And saving faith is three components. The first is knowledge. Our faith must have an object who we know is Jesus Christ. So one does have to have basic knowledge of who Jesus is to be saved. But the second thing that they talked about was an affirmation or an agreement about that knowledge. In other words, it isn't simply enough to have information or content about Jesus if you yourself don't affirm and agree with his teaching. Thousands of people would mentally say that they know of Jesus and that they know the facts about Jesus, but what counts with saving faith is affirming and agreeing with his teaching. So there's the content, there's the affirmation, and then, of course, there is the faith, where we get saving faith from, or trust. So one can have knowledge of Jesus, one can even affirm or agree with Jesus' teaching, but still not exercise faith. All three are necessary for saving faith. In our context, in the Deep South, I would say that many people understand the content or the knowledge about Jesus. They might even be willing to affirm or agree with the teachings of Jesus. But many, many people are not willing to lay down their lives for Jesus. Submit to his leadership. Put their complete faith and trust in Christ as Lord of their life. So saving faith is knowledge its affirmation, and its trust in Christ. And basically, in our text this morning, John is going to continue picking up on those same basic themes that constitute saving faith. So my challenge for us today is not to think that you have already arrived at everything that John is talking about here, but instead, examine your own hearts. Here's a Good quote that I couldn't find who said it, but just know it's not me. Saving faith is not a cold, empty rationalism that simply gives intellectual assent to facts. At the same time, it is not a blind entrusting of ourselves into the hands of someone else. Instead, it is a warm, intellectually vital embrace of the Savior and His promises believing that he can and will do all that he has pledged. It is the willingness to trust him and his word in any and all circumstances and an eagerness to repent when we doubt him. 
So as we work our way through these first five verses this morning, the outline is very simple. John teaches us, number one, we must be born again. Number two, we must obey his commandments. And number three, we must have faith. We must be born again, we must obey his commandments, and we must have faith. Number one, we must be born again. It should come as no surprise at this point that we return to the topic of regeneration. It's an important topic throughout all of John's writings, both his gospel and in the epistles. And here's the definition that we've been using to help us understand regeneration. It is the sovereign work of God, the Holy Spirit, of granting spiritual life to each Christian, raising them from the dead, so that they are now able to repent and trust in Christ as a new creation. This definition reminds us that it's under God's sovereign control, it's a work of the Holy Spirit, and it's the act of bringing a person who was dead in their sin to new life in Christ. Based on this definition of regeneration, we can now approach verse 1 with a little more clarity. Those that believe that Jesus is the Christ do so because they have been born of God. Saving faith is only possible because a person has been born again. And a person who is born again is born again through the act of regeneration. So when John says, believes that Jesus is the Christ... He does not mean merely agreement or affirmation. He means that one has the knowledge of Jesus, they have the agreement to believe it, and they also have faith in Christ. Remember, as we have talked about regeneration over the course of these five, almost five months now, we have said over and over again that regeneration precedes faith. In fact, verse 1 illustrates this point. John doesn't say in verse 1, everyone who believes will be born of God. What does he say? Everyone who believes has been born of God. The tenses of those verbs matter. We only believe because we have been born of God. This sometimes makes people feel uncomfortable. And the question arises, where, where is the role of faith? In this process, everyone in this room firmly believes in faith. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So we firmly adhere to the sovereignty of God, but also the responsibility of man. Certainly, if one is to become a Christian, they must believe in the gospel. And they must make that decision to do so. However, in regeneration, what we argue is that one's belief in the gospel is brought about by God's grace through the work of his spirit. Because if salvation is based on man's faith rather than the work of the Holy Spirit, then faith becomes a work. And we all know, as good Protestants, that there is no works-based Salvation. There is no works-based righteousness. 
So not only does one believe in Jesus because they have been born of God, but John also tells us that they love other believers who have also been born of God. Once a person has been brought from death to life, they now have the heart to not only love God, but fellow Christians as well. And we have talked over and over again about one of the most basic and fundamental ways that we express our love for other believers is in the context of the body of Christ, the local church. I am forever grateful, amazed, and encouraged by the faithfulness and devotion of our church body. We are full of a faithful core of people who are sold out to Christ and his church. And it is a beautiful display of the gospel at work in our congregation. But I also know this, that the saying is also true that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. That's true in almost every organization, including the church. So here's what I want to say. Let me encourage some of you who are on the fence about membership or on the fence about serving in some capacity. It is your Christian duty to commit to a local church and membership and then faithfully serve that church. Someone who claims to love Christians but doesn't love the local church that they claim to be a part of, at the very least, they have a poor understanding of the importance of the body of Christ. And in its most dangerous form, it could be that they themselves are not born again. So, we all have a duty and an obligation to fully commit ourselves to the body of Christ and faithfully serve within that body. So the question is, do you believe Jesus is the Christ and do you love those who have also been made regenerate by the work of the Spirit? And if you cannot answer that question definitively, then it could be that you have not experienced the work of regeneration in your heart. It could be that your heart is still a heart of stone, as Jeremiah tells us. And it has not been changed into a heart of flesh. The good news of the gospel is that for any who repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ alone will be given a new heart through the work of the Spirit. This is what the Bible teaches us. If you feel the weight of your sin, as we sang this morning, before a holy God, and you know that your eternal destination would be apart from God because of your sin, then come to Christ. Turn from your sin. Put your faith in Christ alone. Trust in the finished work of Jesus to die the death that you deserve for your sin. You must be born again, John tells us, to be made right with God. But number two, he doesn't stop there in this passage he says, not only must you be born again, you must also obey his commandments. Now, how can we know that we love the children of God? John describes in these verses three components of what one who has experienced regeneration will demonstrate or will, will exhibit. They will love the children of God, they will love God, 
and they will obey God's commandments. So how can we know that we love the children of God? Through loving God and obeying his commandments and loving the children of God. This triad has been used throughout John's epistle. Normally, up to this point, John has been saying over and over again that one's love for God is demonstrated through one's love for one another. That's what we've been studying the last few chapters. But today he changes it. He says that we can know whether or not a person loves the children of God through loving God and, he says, obeying his commandments. So you could take any three of those aspects loving God, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, and obeying his commandments, and they could be mixed around in any order that you want, and they would ultimately demonstrate that one is a Christian. So, how do we know that one loves God? By obeying his commandments and loving one another. How do we know that Christians are loving one another? By loving God and obeying his commandments. You could keep going. It's a circular argument. All of these three demonstrate that one is, in fact, in Christ. Obeying God's commandments are crucial to demonstrating that we love him. If you go all the way back into the Pentateuch, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul And with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. As you move into the New Testament, in all four gospel accounts Matthew 22, Mark 12, Luke 10, and John 13 we have Jesus talking about what the greatest commandment is, which is to love God and to love our neighbor. So in verse 3, John says that our love for God is demonstrated in keeping his commandments. Based on our understanding of this text, if keeping God's commandments matter, why do we so often downplay or water down the importance of obedience to God's commands and God's law? And I have an answer to that question, at least my opinion to it. It's because we have confused salvation and sanctification. As Protestants, we have passionately refuted, since the time of Martin Luther, the belief that one is made right before God through obeying the law. And that is true. That is a good and faithful teaching that stays right in line with the message of the gospel. But I'm fearful that we oftentimes have overemphasized this understanding and we have downplayed the significance of obeying God's commands, obeying the law of God. Because we know that salvation is not based on one's keeping of the law. It is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Yet, In the process of sanctification, we do know that our obedience to the commandments of God matter greatly. Our holiness matters. Our righteousness matters. Not because that's what saves us, but because we desire to please the one who did save us. The final sentence of verse 3 
is so important for us to understand in order to really grasp the significance of the commandments in our lives. John says here, and his commandments are not burdensome. That was a struggle for some reason. Now, I've referenced this book maybe almost any more than any book I've referenced in any of my sermons. It's a book called The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. It's, it can be a little academic, but when I read this book, it blew my mind as to how Christians who have already been saved by grace through faith should view the law and the commandments that God has given us. So when you and I think of the word legalism, you think of someone who is justified by their keeping of the law. And that is a true distortion of the gospel. And that is not what we want to teach. No one in this room is justified before God by their keeping of the law. But Ferguson points out in that book that legalism is also a distortion of the law itself. Listen to this quote. He can say it much better than I can. The gospel never overthrows God's law for the simple reason that both the law and the gospel are expressions of God's grace. The legalism that distorts grace is also the legalism that distorts law from its God-given character and function, and beneath that has distorted the character of the God who gave it. So what does that mean in relation to verse 3? When Christians rightly understand that God, by a gift of his grace, has given us his law to protect us, to guide us, and to help us as we navigate the Christian life, we come to understand in that moment that the law is not burdensome. When you understand that God has given us commandments to follow and to keep precisely because he loves us, he cherishes us, he wants us to do well in this life, when you understand that the law is a gift of God's grace, it's no longer a burden. Because it's given by someone who knows and wants what's best for you. We keep it now as Christians Because we know that all of his commandments are ultimately an expression of his grace towards us and his love for us. That's why we obey his commandments. That's why we do what the Bible tells us to do. Not because it justifies us before God, but because it is an act of God's grace and love towards us. This is demonstrated in Jesus' teaching, in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus tells me, when Jesus tells the crowds in Matthew 5, when Jesus tells you that if you lust after someone who is not your spouse, you've committed adultery. He's telling us that because he loves us. And he knows that lust in our minds can eventually lead to lust with our bodies. And he wants what's best for us. When he also tells us in Matthew 5 that anytime you are angry with a brother or sister, it's the same as murder. He's telling us that not to weigh us down. He's telling us that because he loves us. 
because he doesn't want our hearts holding on to that anger, which then leads to resentment and bitterness towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you are in Christ today, you need, if not already, to begin viewing the law as a gift that God has given you to help you in your pursuit of holiness. Do not view it as a burden that weighs you down because that's not biblical. Jesus says in his own teaching in Matthew 11 that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. God's commandments should not be burdensome to those in Christ. So hold that to one side. If you are in Christ today, God's commandments should not be burdensome. They are for your good, for you to grow in holiness and in righteousness and in your sanctification. He has given you his commandments because he loves you and he wants to see you do well in pursuing him. If you're not in Christ, however, his law is burdensome. It's heavy. In the Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, Christian, on his pursuit to the celestial city, has this huge boulder on his back. That boulder is to represent the weight of his sin before a holy God. And he is pursuing making it to the celestial city and pursuing finding Christ so that that burden of the law, which is represented in a real boulder on his back, he is looking for a way for that to be lifted. Why is he looking for a way for that to be lifted? Because all of those that are not in Christ, the law is burdensome. It does weigh you down. It's only when you realize that Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. When you cast your sin upon Christ and allow him to carry the weight and the burden of your sin that you can be made free. So Christians, the commandments are for your good so that you will continue to pursue holiness and righteousness. You are not saved by your ability to obey the commandments, but your sanctification is directly related to your obedience to Christ. You must obey his commandments. Lost people in the room, you cannot obey the commandments of God on your own. You're incapable of doing it, which is why you plead for the blood of Christ. You plead for his righteousness, and it is only through his righteousness in you that you can obey his commandments. But number three, we must also, John says, have faith. In verse four, John discusses overcoming the world. You need to understand that the world throughout John's epistle means the attitudes or the values that are opposite of God. And it is only through the act of regeneration that we are no longer ultimately enslaved to the world. Look at Romans 6. Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The only way we can have victory in this world as Christians is because of what Christ accomplished for us. Look at the second half of verse 4. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We need to be very careful when we read this verse that we do not misinterpret what John is teaching here. John is not saying that we have overcome the world because of the strength or the effort of our faith. This is not about the strength or the effort that you bring to your faith, but the strength of the one who we put our faith in. It is only through faith in Christ that we are able to overcome the world. This would be a passage where someone could misinterpret faith to mean that they must work really, really hard and just believe hard enough. And if they believe hard enough, then God will automatically or ultimately heal them from whatever it is they're going through. This is not a name it, claim it type faith that John is talking about here. In the word of faith movement, which is out there, the emphasis is on the individual's faith. But what good is my individual faith unless it's in Christ alone? That's the difference. Verse 5 basically makes the point for me. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes what? In the strength of their faith? No, that Jesus is the Son of God. This verse doesn't say the one who overcomes the world has really strong faith. It says the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The strength of my faith, the strength of your faith, if you're in Christ, is in the object of our faith, Christ. Not in the human effort that we put into our faith. Yes, you must have faith, but faith in the one who can deliver you from the domain of darkness and transfer you to the kingdom of light, not in your own strength of your faith. In this age of self-help and do-it-yourself and individualism, Christianity is teaching something radically different than how the world often views the term faith. Faith for Christians is full submission and full faith in someone else. Not in the power and the strength of my own faith. No matter how much I try to be a better person, no matter how much you try to be a better person, you'll never be able, I'll never be able to attain the righteousness on my own needed to be in a right relationship with God. My faith will never be good enough. It will never be strong enough on my own. So I put whatever weak faith I have in Christ. Here's the point. The person 
with the weakest faith in Christ to save them from their sin is better off than the person with the strongest faith in themselves. Let me say it again. The person with the weakest faith in Christ to save them from their sin is better off than the person with the strongest faith in themselves. Placing one's faith in Christ doesn't mean that you'll suddenly be able to beat up everyone and dominate the world. It's not like getting a star in Mario, for those of you that have played Mario. It doesn't mean you can just start obliterating everything. Man, I'm really old if nobody understands Mario, you know. (laughs) Placing one's faith in Christ, he is the one who gives you strength. He is the one who helps you be able to overcome the world. In fact, placing faith in Christ ultimately means that you become the weakest and the lowest. Because it is when you are at your weakest and your lowest that Christ makes you strong. As John writes to these Christians who were experiencing false teaching, these false teachers were telling them, Jesus is not the Son of God. Once you're in Christ, you no longer struggle with sin. Continue to build up your knowledge. What ultimately saves you is your knowledge. And John is refuting all of those false teachings. And he is reminding the sincere brothers and sisters in Christ in this passage that authentic faith, however weak it might be, if it is in Christ, is legitimate. But any faith that we put on ourselves to be made right with God will ultimately lead to destruction and separation from God. So John reminds us of the basics and the fundamentals of what it means to be in Christ. You must be born again, you must obey his commandments, and you must have faith. Not faith in yourself, but faith in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, this morning we simply want to respond to the the word that reminds us that we are to love one another, love you, And love your commandments. As Christians, we will fall short of obeying your commandments perfectly. We know that. Thankfully, through the perfect life of Jesus, his perfect record with your commandments has been imputed to us. And we walk in victory today knowing that we have overcome the world, not based on the strength of our faith, but based on the strength of the faith that we put our hope in, Christ. And if there are any in this room today who are weighed down and they feel the burden of their sin and they have no hope and they see no way out, my prayer is that they would cast their sin on Jesus. They would confess it, turn from it, and trust in Christ alone for salvation. We ask all of these things in the name of your Son, our Savior.
Jesus. Amen.